Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Louise Fagan. And I'm Jillian Wise. And we're here today with our guest, Jennifer Slay. Jen is a multi-award winning speaker, coach, therapist, registered social worker, and a certified trainer, having served on numerous boards and advisory committees, all while running her successful business, Jennifer Slay Counseling and Coaching, and also producing a TV show, What's Up London, on Rogers TV. With over 20 years' experience in community leadership, she has just stepped into the role of Director of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Decolonization at King's University, London, Ontario. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. You grew up in a mining town in northern Manitoba, if I'm not mistaken. What was it like growing up there? Oh, Thompson, Manitoba, you know... I don't know anything else other than watching my kids grow up in a bigger city. And what I found being in a small town, it was just fun. Like we we just went outside in the morning, came back in the evening. Like that was just the way it is. And I don't, maybe it's the times as well. I don't know, but it, it was good. And I'm finding that there's a lot of opportunities in those smaller towns because we're isolated. Money flows up there to provide opportunities. So I traveled a lot with school through the track team, with the band and it was it was a wonderful way to grow up but I will say I I wouldn't move back as an adult (laughs) (laughs) you know I was curious about how those early years formed your future goals and you've already said that you had lots of opportunity and what did that exposure to the small town but then also to life outside a small town how did that shape you well you know I was very very fortunate because my parents were both educators and they made sure that my sister and I traveled every summer somewhere. So on top of traveling with school, they would bring us to a different part of the world. And it allowed us to see how other people live. And I think that also my sister, she's a speech pathologist. So both of us are in that service field to support and help people to grow, to be the best that they can be. I know that sounds so cliche, But really and truly, that's what we love. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like, you know, your parents really instilled those values in both of you of wanting to help other people and give back to your own communities and then maybe even larger communities outside of your own. Yes, they were very clear with us from very young age that we were young Black women. And so therefore, we had to work harder Mm -hmm. if we wanted to achieve what non-racialized people would achieve. So we just had that instilled in us from a very young age. And they also, I want to be careful how I say this, but they also made sure that we didn't allow for any excuses for why we couldn't achieve something. They always told us, work hard, do well in school, and doors will open. And that's what we did. And my mother, my father was the disciplinarian. My mother, she was, be kind. Always be kind to people. Don't treat anyone different from the presidents of the company to the frontline staff to janitorial staff. Treat everybody kind and the same. And so that's what we do. And it's it's worked for us. <laughs> yes, I'll say it has. And those values that you just described, and you know, you said cliche, and maybe they are, but they're also true. Were you always planning on leaving Thompson, Manitoba? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful place to grow up in reflection. But at the time, being a teenager in small town up northern Manitoba, Like, get me the heck out of here. I need to leave. I need to leave. So I had an aunt that lived in London. She said, Jenny, just come. That's my family calls me Jenny. Jenny, just come to London. Just come to London. And you can go to school here and you can live at my house and it'll be nice. It'll be fun. Okay. 
Why not? Because most people were going to Winnipeg and Winnipeg to me was just a bigger Thompson and I, I wanted a different experience. Plus, one of my best friends was supposed to be coming to London as well and last minute said she wasn't going. I, was like, <laughs> I decided to come anyways. Had you spent time in London before going there for school? Yes, but I think it was just a few days. So we, we would come and we would visit my aunt, but we'd mainly stay in Toronto. And mm-hmm. so I think we might have visited London once or twice. And that, that was it. So I didn't really know London that well, but it was bigger than Thompson. So <laughs> Yeah. And what was your expectation? Were you thinking then, like you said, you've been to Toronto, you certainly had traveled. What was your expectation of London prior to getting here? I didn't have any expectation. All I knew was that the population of the school was the same population of my city. <laughs> and so I was like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. And now London has a reputation of being, at that time anyways, not very diverse. But coming from Thompson, it was very diverse to me, right? <laughs> so it's all perspective. Initially, I had wanted to go to Toronto. And my father was like, there's no way. There is no way you're going to Toronto. That would have been too big of a culture shock. And were you planning on staying in Ontario when you came for school? Or like, were you initially thinking it would be temporary just to study and then you'd go back to Manitoba? Not Manitoba. But I didn't know where I would go. I did want to, to leave London after graduating because all of my friends went to the GTA. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to the GTA. I had a, a baby while I was doing my second degree. And a uh, surprise baby, surprise, here you go. <laughs> so I didn't want to raise him in Toronto because it was just too busy for me. And I wasn't, I really wasn't used to, to a big city like that. And I was only 23 when I had him. So we stayed in London. And then when he was a little older, I said, okay, we're going to leave. But then I met somebody and, and we got married and he liked London. So I was like, oh, I guess we're staying. <laughs> we just ended up staying in London. And staying in London, you know, you really built a solid network and how did you like what did the landscape look like for you 23 24 25 year or 25 26 whatever it was you're newly married you're staying in London and now you're mm-hmm. thinking okay I'm making my life here what did the what was that like for you it's funny because while I was doing it I wasn't really thinking long term about building a career. I was just had my mom's voice in my head, be kind, do good and serve. And so that's really what I did. I I happened to meet Harold Usher, who was the first black city councillor in London, Ontario. So I happened to meet him at an event and that got me into the black community to start doing some work in the community. Prior to that, when I was at Western, I had uh, been part of the Black Students Association and did uh, quite a bit of work in in there. So I've always had a love for the Black community and wanting to support the Black community and thriving. So that's really where everything started for me. And so what, you know, did those first five years look like after graduation? Like, it sounds like you planted so many seeds for your future to get to where you are now. How did, you know, did you know kind of where you wanted to go and so how you were planting those seeds? All honesty, I did not. What I knew, I wanted to be involved with things I loved. I first got involved with the uh, Black History Month closing gala. And so that was an, an exposition of Black talent in the London area. And that was fun for me. So Harold Usher and I, we produced, we wrote, we directed, we did that whole show. I think it was 12 years 
together. And, and that's where that started. And right out of school, I got a job in child welfare. Mm-hmm. So to survive child welfare, you've got to make sure that you have other things going on in your life because that can really be heavy. Right. So that's where it started. And then different opportunities came up. Someone said, would you like to sit on this board? I'm like, yeah, why not? And so I sat on um, different boards within the community. Then I started getting into business. So is that where you, where you germinated the idea for a coaching business? Yes. So as I was um, dip, dipping and dabbling in, in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. a friend of mine was going through some coaching certification. And he said, Jen, I need to practice. Would you mind if I practiced with you? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And so I went through a session with him and I absolutely loved it. I'm like, this is amazing. This is a wonderful way of supporting people. And I didn't know that, like, I didn't know there was a coaching thing. Like, I didn't know that that was a thing. After a a few years, I met another girlfriend. Her name was Jenna Goodhead. And she was telling me about a program that she was involved in, um, Healthy, Wealthy and Wise coaching program. And so I went through there and I got certified and then... um, opportunity came that I was able to start a counseling and coaching business. And so I I did it very part-time, very, very part-time while I was working full-time at Children's Aid. And then the opportunity came that I could do it full-time. And I said, why not? Let's do it. Jump. As Steve Harvey says, jump. (laughs) Did you have a specific community or industry that you kind of targeted your coaching towards? Women, women experiencing depression and experiencing anxiety. When I had gone through a divorce in 2015, and at that time, I, I myself went through a depression. And I promised myself, I would pray and I promised myself, you know, once I'm through this, because I will get through this, I am going to dedicate my life to making sure other people have supports so that they can get through tough times. One of the things that I, I I speak about a lot is adversity and the importance of adversity. Too often we're trying to avoid it and we don't have to avoid it. It really does help to make us stronger, but we do need supports to get through it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really where I find my business and my coaching team. We really work to support people through adversity as opposed to trying to avoid it altogether. Actually, I'm curious to re- for your experience over the pandemic. And we all went through this adversity, right? And so how has your services been needed or evolved? Well, it's interesting. There's a huge increase in people experiencing anxiety. But the interesting part of it is that people aren't relating it back to, to COVID or the pandemic. They're thinking it's something else. So I used to be able to do this and now I, it scares me and I can't. And it's it's very interesting to me, but I, I really believe that the catalyst of all of that was the pandemic, living in uncertainty. Our brain does not like that. It has to have affected people. And some people were able to manage it. I think the people who managed it really well had a number of supports around them. But there were so many people who were isolated, literally isolated by themselves for weeks. And so it, it really had a negative impact. And especially with our young people, a huge impact on our young people. What was it like for you as a coach supporting other people who are experiencing something that you're also experiencing? So whether that be COVID or depression, how do you do that? So I wouldn't recommend other people do this, <laughs> but I kind of I kind of put on the my hat and it's like, okay, we got to do this. We got to help people. Let's go out and let's do that. And so then I wasn't taking care of myself. 
in all honesty. Mm. I, I really wasn't taking care of myself. I was just kind of focusing and that's how I dealt with it, right? And then when things started to calm down, that's when I started to feel it. And I could feel myself kind of sinking. There's a, when, when you're a person who've, who's experienced depression, there's this sinking feeling that you start to feel. You can, if you pay attention to your body, you know when you're going to start going there. And so I implemented tools right away. The tools that I teach people every day, I started implementing on myself. Journaling, meditating, walking, exercising, doing all of the things, spending time with loved ones. And that really helped me to develop a routine that I do till this day. The pandemic was good for me in that way because it, it forced me to take a look at myself and say, okay, Jen, you cannot preach one thing and do another thing. It, that's just not the way this works. And so it, it forced me to really take care of myself. I really appreciate that you've been so open and vulnerable with us about about your own path with depression and and how that affects your coaching. And I would feel as someone who would be looking for a counselor or coach, I could relate and resonate that much more with somebody who had the shared experience. And I, I can see that being very helpful. I'm, I'm a very um, authentic person that way, or I've developed that over the years, especially the last five, five, to 10 years. Like, you know what? I am no longer going to try and be this perfect person who does everything right because God knows I have made my share of mistakes in life. And um, when you're able to share that with people, it just humanizes you. And people are like, okay, well, if, if you can get through all that, then I can too. Yeah. I feel that's the freedom of aging. You know, it's one of the wonderful benefits is that we actually have experiences. We can say, yes, we lived through this. <laughs> And now uh-huh. that, you know, yeah. it did, it might've taken me to my knees for a bit, but you know, I'm back up again so we can get through things. It makes me really appreciate older people. Like mm-hmm. I, I remember my grandmother thinking, why does she just say anything that comes to her head? Like there's no filter. And it's like, ah, I understand now. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still doing coaching now currently, correct? Yes. I am juggling a yeah. lot of things right now. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I started this position at King's University College December 1st. And prior to that, I had already wanted to kind of transition myself into doing more speaking and more workshop education and things like that. So I have already been priming my team. Like, okay, I want to step away. So let's, you guys, get your certifications, get you this, get you that. And I have clients seeing you as opposed to me. and, And my team is phenomenal. I just love them to pieces. They're great. And they're all over. Wow. And so, you know, this role that you're doing in equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization, I'm curious about the role itself specifically, but my question is more, how has what you've done prior to this position led up to getting you here in terms of this area specifically? You know, to me, everything in my life has culminated to right now. It's just amazing to me that I got involved with the Black community over 20 years ago. From there, um, I did some work with the Congress of Black Women and was on their executive. From there, worked within different organizations and really looked at representation. And when I was at the Children's Aid Society, I would be on their anti-oppression committee as well as different support committees with regards to the Black social workers. And then other other opportunities in terms of sitting on different boards and being able to communicate effectively 
because that's a huge thing I find in this in this realm of EDI is to the ability to communicate and have those hard conversations. Uh, and so all of that led up. Um, and then in 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, I said to myself, why are people saying the things that they're saying? Because there were some really harsh judgments mm. being set, set on social media. And it, it, it clicked to me, we're not talking. We're not having those hard conversations for whatever reason, because they're hard. And I I, I empathize for white people in, in the sense that they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to be looked at as racist. They don't want to. And I get that. I get that. So how do we create a space where we can have those conversations and be educated at the same time? And that's how Shifting Perspectives was born. Myself and three other women created an anti-racism education program. And it's taken off. Like it, it's just been amazing. So prior to King's, I worked with King's in delivering that program. And then we've worked with Brescia College. We've worked with The Grand. We've worked with ASICS. They're an athletic type company. We've, we've done a lot of great work and the testimonials have been phenomenal. Wow. So all of that came together and I got a telephone call from a recruiter with the BIPOC executive search. They contacted me and says, hey, have you ever considered? And they told me about the King's position. I'm like, no, <laughs> I have not ever. My business is thriving. I'm doing a lot of really great things. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. No. <laughs> and she's like, well, I think you should just look at it. Well, what's the harm? Let me just check it out. And so through the interview process, because I think there were three, three different interviews, and during that process, it, something clicked in my head that, Jen, this is another way you can do your work. You can incorporate mm -hmm. your social work, you can incorporate your lived experience, you can incorporate um, the DEI experience, that you, you can incorporate all of it. And I was like, huh, okay, so this must be the next best step, as, as Oprah says, what's your next best move? And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a, you know, you started working with individuals and then organizations, but is this, um, I'm sure it's both of those, but also systems work that you'll be doing. I, I mean, that's a whole other level of coaching and counseling. It really, really is. And it, the interesting thing, because it didn't occur to me till I was about three days into the job, I'm like, I'm not going to be doing the frontline work. I'm the one delegating and telling other people <laughs> what they need to be doing. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is different, <laughs> but, but amazing at the same time, amazing mm. at the same time, because another thing, I, and I don't know if it's an age thing, but when I hit about 44, 45, I was very much into mentorship, helping other people develop and become who they wanted to become. And so I find this role to be very much mentorship and consultation and supporting people to be better. Maya Angelou said that when when you learn better, you do better. You do better. Yeah. Right? So essentially, that's that's what this role really is. It's a lot of consulting with staff, with faculty, with students, and really doing a lot of listening. Because you know, if I went into this position and, and said, "Well, this is what you guys need to do," <laughs> and I don't take the time to really listen and hear what it is that is going on, then I'm, then I'm doing a disservice and I'm actually going to cause harm. The first two months is really going to be meet, meeting with all the faculty chairs and the different departments and the staff and the students 
and really assessing what is going on and then coming together to determine this is where we want to go. So let's develop a plan to get there together. And to have been entrusted with being able to, to do that work is amazing. Like I, I, I can't describe the feeling. It's just, wow. What's it like for you to see the EDID landscape now versus when you were studying at King's? And then you're also now thinking to however far into the future for what you're going to accomplish in the role. It's come a long way. It, it, there's a lot of similar issues from 30 years ago to now. When I was at King's, I had a wonderful experience, actually, because a week before I started my program, I found out that I was pregnant. So the first year I was in social work, I was pregnant. And the second year I had an infant. <laughs> So they were extreme. But the thing is, the faculty, my colleagues, the other students, amazingly supportive. Mm. So my experience at King's was very, very, very good. My experience at Western was a little bit different. It, it was bigger. So there wasn't that, that individual, you didn't really get to know your professors and things like that. But I belonged to what's called the Black Students Association. And I remember one February, there was argument about Black History Month and that they were going to considering canceling it and calling it Multicultural Month. And I was like, wow, like, how, how are you going to cancel Black History Month? Like it just, mm-hmm. it didn't make sense. And so that that kind of sparked some advocacy in a young 19, 20 year old. So, so that experience there, that would not happen today. I, I don't think they could ever get away with doing something like that today, but things happen in different ways. Things are kind of under undercover. We don't see things, but you know, my mother, she used to say every disappointment is for the best. And I just want to say, like, I don't think the death of anyone is a good thing, especially the way George Floyd was murdered. But because of that, it sparked something in the world and things just started to move. I'm not sure if we would be where we're at right now in the world with EDI if that murder didn't happen so publicly the way it did. I think you're right. I think the publicly part of it, because, you know, We've heard many stories since, and we heard stories before mm-hmm. about yeah. abuse yeah. and um, because mis- yeah. it, it's not he was not the first, no, right? He was not the first, and and there was public outrage with things that happened before, but because it was filmed and blasted ever, the world saw it yeah. in real time, and there was there was no no arguing with what you I mean you couldn't debate it because it what you saw was the truth that happened and everybody had to confront that within themselves and their communities and it did really provoke some very challenging conversations and I think beliefs that many of us had about you know you said earlier and and we can go back to it if you don't mind for just one moment you'd said earlier that you know, many white people don't think they're racist or don't feel, and they also are uncomfortable to talk about. They don't know how to broach the subjects. As you said, we don't want to say the wrong thing or people don't want to misinterpret or be misinterpreted. That being said, if, you know, you've created this space, which you do with all of your work that allows for that and you have some nice grace with us in these conversations that allows those hard and upsetting conversations to happen. And I don't know, I just I just wonder how how it went then. So you went to 
different organizations. You know, we're kind of going back a little bit before your King's College stories now, but, you know, prior when you were doing the shifting perspectives, what what was it like in those spaces there you, when you would go in? I don't shy away from challenge because I, I was in child welfare for 19 years and that primed me well for, for difficult conversations. I've also spent a lot of time in reflection kind of when George Floyd was murdered, I, I kind of had to ask myself, why? And I asked myself this. So why do they hate us so much? <laughs> what did Black people do to be hated so much that someone felt that they could just, in plain sight, just kill kill him? Like, I, I couldn't understand. And a light bulb went off for me when I thought, well, for over 400 years, Black people were depicted a certain way, were treated a certain way, and thought of a certain way. And if we know about culture and and the brain, we know that, you know, we are influenced by the beliefs of our families. And if your family constantly is telling you these people are this way, and then if the media is constantly telling you these people are this way, the brain is going to look for confirmation of that, confirmation that people are, Black people are that way. And so it doesn't matter when you see a Black person doing something well, that's just, oh, that's just that one person. That's just them. Let's look at the them, the ones that are not, right? And that confirms that confirmation bias in our brains. And so when I started to think about that, I was like, oh, okay, so it's only really been about 60 years when Black people have actually had rights. The civil rights movement was in the 60s. So it's only been about 60 years compared to 400 prior. I get it. I I, I get it. It's this ignorance that happens. They just don't know. So how do we get people, how do we get white people to know, Mm -hmm. to understand? And that's what changed things for me in in my brain. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this with your combined backgrounds of social work and then just your lived experiences and then your work in EDI and just how you, how you just described it just to make sense of it almost. And I'm curious how you're, how you see yourself incorporating this understanding of it and with your background into this role that you now have at King's. Right now, it would be really, probably wouldn't be wise for me to say, this is what I'm going to do because Mm -hmm. I really that's the situation over at King's to see where I would be best suited. The faculty that I've I've spoken to so far, they've talked about we want to diversify our faculty. Can you support us in helping us with the ad and the wording? Who do we approach? How do we find the people that we're looking for? And they've been amazing that way. Is this a new role? It's a brand new role. So they've never had someone in this role before. To be fair, there was an anti-racist working group with King's and Brescia College, and they had eight recommendations. The position that I'm in right now is one of those recommendations. And so I am to support King's in in fulfilling those the recommendations that they've created, as well as the truth and reconciliation and the different goals in in there for a Catholic college. 
That is deep systems work. <laughs> when you think about the, the layers, you know, of an institution and how it was founded and where it's evolved to, it's really exciting, though. And when you said that one of the first things was about the diversity in their staff, I mean, how fabulous for young people coming to school and seeing themselves represented. So important. Because we know, even when I was in child welfare, if a family, if a white family had a Black child in their home, one of the things that we're saying is, make sure you have art that represents Black people. Make sure you have magazines and books. Bring them out to see positive things happening in the community. We Children need to see themselves represented in a positive way for them to develop their own positive self-identity. Yeah. I want to take us back a little bit to kind of where you're at now. And I'm just wondering what, what does it mean for you in your journey or just in your life anyway, to have reached where you are now, whether that's in your career or just your life in general? Um, it's, it's kind of makes me speechless, which is interesting because I always have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I don't think when I was going through the interview process, I didn't realize what the position actually was, like the importance of, of that position until I got it and it was advertised and I would hear from my community, oh my gosh, we're so proud. Oh my goodness, congratulations. People I don't know, contact, I'm so happy to see you in this role. It was like, it brings tears to my eyes. It was amazing. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Yeah, it's exciting for the whole community. And, you know, Kings and London have far-reaching arms. You know, Kings has relationships throughout the country. And, and do you see that being an option for you, that you'll be able to access colleagues and work that's being done other places? For sure. Um, Kings actually is international. I've spoken to some of the professors who've talked about bringing their students to France or they've gone to different parts in Africa. It's just amazing the opportunities that they provide for their students. So to be able to know that I would be able to access people all over the world to talk about this work is really exciting to see how other places have done it. Because I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. I think if we can find people doing things well, then let's just kind of copy what they're doing. And that's that's the beautiful thing about this work. I think too, in the past two, three years, especially, this has become a priority for a lot of people and institutions. And so there's a lot of work that's happening everywhere that I think that there's a lot of knowledge that can be shared too around that. And it's a journey. That's the thing. There's no destination. Mm. There's no, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'm woke. No, <laughs> it's, a, it's a journey. We're always going to be learning and we're going to mess up along the way, all of us are going to mess up along the way, but we learn and then we do better and we keep going. You were chosen as one of Canada's Women of Confidence for Chatelaine Magazine. Can you tell us the story about that, about when you found out and, and what does that mean? It's it's Chatelaine Magazine is such a historic for women in Canada. The funny thing is one night I was just kind of scrolling the internet and I saw this this advertisement where are you a woman of confidence if you think you are then send in a picture as well as a statement I said oh well why not I just said okay let me try and the interesting thing is that they were trying to contact me for about two weeks and it was going to my junk I didn't even know oh. <laughs> and so one day I saw this thing in my email and I was like what's this I opened it up I'm like 
oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was, it was hilarious, really. And so I was chosen. I was, I was chosen as one of Canada's women of confidence, which was a nice boost to the ego. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it is. And I love mm-hmm. that, that it's something that you went after. Because I think, you know, when you were saying you work a lot with women, and many of us do not put ourselves forward, we would see something, oh, I could maybe, you know, but we we stop ourselves. And I think it's, it's when especially then for like a women's publication that says you have to you have to put yourself forward and then to actually go ahead and do that and then to be rewarded with being chosen. I, I just think that's really, really wonderful. And it's another great example of how you can inspire and encourage women. And it's so appreciated. There's a, another company that I call called All Women Lead. And we do various events throughout the year because all women, anyone who identifies as a woman, we are all leaders. Mm. It doesn't matter what your title is you lead in some way. And we often will talk about how you can become a leader as a woman in this world, but we don't necessarily talk about the experience of being a woman in leadership. We have three virtual events throughout the year and panel discussions with four diverse women who are in some sort of leadership role, and that could be any type of role. And then in March, so in March 2020, we had our first in-person event. We had approximately 200 women in a room. And this year we're coming back to a hybrid in March for International Women's Day. It's March 6th. So we're having it at Huron College this year. They have sponsored the event and provided their venue to us, which has been amazing. And we'll have a hybrid, hybrid situation. So we'll have speakers and we will have panel It'll be wonderful. Rita Goldberg is the speaker for that. And she has an amazing story. Jen, do you have an element of any of the work that you do or something that's top of mind that you'd like to share with our listeners to carry forward with them? Always be authentic because that is your gift to the world. There's no two people that are exactly alike. And when we try to copy and be something that we're not, we rob the world of the gift that we are. So just be yourself. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everyone's going to appreciate you. But when you do find your people, good. One of my dearest friends said to me, life is short, but the longest thing you will ever do. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. Jen Slay. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to know where to start because it was so impactful. You know, there was so much said, but Jennifer has just a wonderful way of expressing and making the hard topics accessible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What were were your initial impressions and thoughts after? I just can't get over how much she's doing. (laughs) Like, I'm like, what? It's inspiring. And I'm also like, what, when does she sleep? And, um, yeah, like even just, you know, the time in the day, but also just the capacity for it all is really incredible. And, you know, she has to have a lot of outward energy for the work that she's doing. And, um, it's, 
It's just incredible to see. Yeah, you're right. I think that's a really good way of saying it too, that all that energy that she has to expend, and it must mean that she's doing the work that also fills her as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's she must point. be, yeah. you know, following a path that is right for her and makes sense for her. She was also very generous and clear about the the collaborations that she's involved in and how collaborating Mm -hmm. makes it Mm -hmm. possible too. And that's right. You know, when you have a good team, but still someone's got to lead it and set the policies and the agendas and the direction and Mm -hmm. keep it all moving forward and everybody still has to do their part. So, yeah. 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 What was something else that was a takeaway? Well, I'm very curious to know what happens for her at King's College, I think in like mm-hmm. another 60 to 120 days, that change to systems work, you know, after being so focused on personal and, and community-based work, and then to be mm-hmm. in, a, in an mm-hmm. institution, a storied institution that, you know, <laughs> steeped in its own traditions and histories, yeah. and the kind of work that she's going to be able to affect. I'm very excited, especially because she talked about the initial welcome she had been receiving and the kinds of changes that they wanted to see take place. And, you know, that background work isn't always as, you know, it's not always considered the sexier work, right? Like people don't, you don't get to see what's happening. You don't get mm-hmm. to, as opposed to the public facing, but the, it's it's huge. It's just, it's almost hard to to quantify what kind of effect that's going to have. And even the changes that she described herself from when she studied versus now. And then I'm just looking forward to seeing what, you know, the future brings to for new students. Yeah. You know, Jen didn't shy away from, as we were saying, you know, kind of the, the challenging topics and the hard topics. And we went back a couple times to talk about George Floyd and what a catalyst his death was in amping up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's not gone away and it shouldn't. And I am really grateful that she is still talking about this because time has not healed everything, obviously, right? There are still challenging conversations to be had that that can be productive. And I just really appreciate because here's the thing, you know, she's part of the community that is systematically uh, affected and yet is stepping up to be part of the solution. And that is a huge responsibility that is, uh, you know, in many ways, it doesn't seem fair. If you're the one affected and have to then also then tell people, I'm affected and this is why, and this is why, I mean, it just, it's a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. It's a heavy burden. And mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted to say that I don't know if we had a chance to express that, how, that but that that is seen and acknowledged and appreciated Mm -hmm. and is not expected and taken lightly. Yeah, I think about that a lot too. And um, again, just the fact that she's taking on that role in so many different contexts is, uh, I don't know, I hate trying to find adjectives for stuff like this because I don't think that there is an adjective that describes it. Right, right. You know, she's committed to so much, but she brought so much to our conversation Mm -hmm. and so much energy and generosity. And it, you know, I felt it. And even though we're not like in the same room, I felt it through our conversation. And I just love that. I agree. I thought she was like really gentle with us, like leading us along. (laughs) Here's how, I mean, it was just, and I can, so you can imagine how fabulous she would Mm -hmm. be in a one-on-one or even mm-hmm. in a session. And I am excited to be now part of her 
women's lead group, all women lead. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I know, that. I know. So I was waiting at the train station the other day to take the train into the city and I saw this woman like younger than me standing at the train station waiting and I actually took a little picture because I really liked her outfit and it was very like her outfit was very casual like kind of sweatpants windbreaker like nothing overly fancy or anything but it just it was comfortable but really nicely put together And so then I started going online and I was like looking for clothes that were similar to kind of what she was wearing. And I went on the Roots website and I don't know if you've been online at Roots recently, but they have like fully changed their style in the best way. Like I felt for a while, like they kind of had the same look for a long time. It always said like Roots across the chest or on the butt of the sweatpants. That was the same like font Mm. and like same colors and everything and like same, what is it called? The same cut of sweatshirts. And they have really nice stuff now. It's like, I don't know, kind of has like 80s Mm. vibes, but like not fully. And they've got like windbreakers and quarter zip sweaters and fleece and like fun colors, but nothing too wild. And I just really liked it. And I was like, wow, yeah, this is really nice. Uh, This is exciting for me because you know, I love anything Canadian. I love these storied Canadian (laughs) brands. I am down for it. I'm excited. Because honestly, the last time I was on the Roots website, it was last year when I bought sweaters for family, right? I bought those like Roots Mm -hmm. sweaters because I just Mm -hmm. love them so much. And little baby classic, You know, Mm -hmm. so um, I'm excited. You know, it's so funny you say that (laughs) about just seeing people who who have a really – good style and you're like oh my gosh how do they pull that together that's my thing how do Mm -hmm. people and where do they find their things so this is an awesome hint and direction I'm going to go on to the roots website and check it out because you know I love my roots yeah and like what this person at the train station was wearing it wasn't like she had necessarily bought all these new things and then fit them perfectly Mm. together like it looked like they were just from her normal closet (laughs) like it wasn't anything overly specific it was just she had chosen to put it together in a way that was a nice balance of like work versus home versus going out somewhere but still very casual and sometimes I find just seeing people in real life or going on Pinterest and finding kind of some inspo for that stuff is helpful. And then it reminds me of like what I can use in my closet. Like I didn't end up buying anything off of the Roots website. Yet. I would like to, (laughs) but yeah, exactly. (laughs) I have my cart full. I just didn't, I just didn't put my cart information in. That's funny. But you know, just getting inspiration. And then, like I said, I, I haven't bought anything Mm -hmm. from Roots in a long Mm -hmm. time because I wasn't really into the look. And then I went on the website. I was like, I'm just going to go see. And then I was like, oh my gosh. So is, so, I mean, I go through these cycles too, where sometimes I feel like everything I'm wearing is like on point. I feel like really good. I feel like Mm -hmm. checked in. Yeah. And that started for me. I remember when I was like, when I was in high school, end of high school, beginning of college, and I was working and buying my own clothes. And I used to shop at Le Chateau because that was like the (laughs) high end (laughs) fashion for me and my demographic. (laughs) And, you know, everything's kind of new wave funk. I mean, that's where where I was at. But, um, and it was so fun. And then every like six months, maybe I do a shop in Louise's closet and my sisters would come and go shop because I'd be like, okay, I'm getting rid of this. I'm getting rid of this. I do a purge Mm -hmm. and they come and shop. Would you make them pay? No, I didn't. (laughs) 
<laughs> that came later with furniture. But no, <laughs> no, it'd be like shop in Louise's closet. And I only did it a few times, but you know, it was because I was yeah. getting like purging stuff and, you know, and that was really fun. And they were always kind of like funky and relatively contemporary. What about you? When have you felt that you were like, yeah, this is like my style is working for me? Working for me, I don't know. There was definitely a long time in high school where I felt very creative in my outfits. <laughs> like I felt like every day I could wear something fully different and I loved yeah. it. And looking back, I would never wear those things again. <laughs> like I used to wear like, you know, shirts backwards and put a belt on it and was like, this is a look. <laughs> I'm a bit more reserved now in I think which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I go th- kind of through periods. And right now I'm wanting I'm playing a bit more with color. Nice. So I'm trying to buy things that are colorful versus just neutrals. And that's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so funny too, because in COVID, like we weren't doing anything. And for some reason, since COVID, I've been like buying dresses. Where am I going? <laughs> but the dresses that you bought were so great. And I think we just need to find places to wear them. I'm saying we because I'll be coming with you wherever you're going in a dress. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I was thinking the next time I come to Montreal, we have to go for dinner at the restaurant near your place. It's not called meat. It's called something Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's it called? What's it? Carcass. <laughs> And I know you don't have necessarily a dress, but you know, again, just like planning things where you can dress up a bit will be fun. Thank you again to Jennifer Slay for just such a beautiful and heartwarming and heart filling conversation. And I'm excited for her and and to follow her. So, how do we do that, Jillian? You can find Jen Slay on LinkedIn and Instagram at Jen Slay, and we'll be leaving the link to All Women Lead in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episode, like, and review the Soundlens podcast, and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soundlens Podcast, and for more episodes, you can visit soundlenspodcast.com. 